The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we're going to start in verse 1. Amen. So our first core value here at Love City, and what we're going to be talking about tonight, is that we are gospel-centered in everything, okay? Um, and what that means is that we, in absolutely everything we do and say, that it is all for the purpose of holding the gospel high for all to see. If we cannot draw a clear line between a ministry or a program or an activity and the furthering of the most precious of all truths, then we're not going to do that ministry or program or activity. We are gospel-centered in everything. It influences all that we do. Uh, This core value is number one on the list, very intentionally. Uh, None of the other core values that we have, our mission or our vision, none of them, even our existence, none of those things really make sense without getting this first thing first, without the gospel being set in its proper place. Um, we're going to spend a little time, uh, first off, just answering the question, what is the gospel? Uh, the word gospel, it comes from a Greek word. Uh, it's euangelion. That's going to sound weird to our tongue, but that's because it's Greek. Greek is the language that the New Testament was written in originally. A lot of you know that, but some of you may not. Uh, and this word euangelion is found 76 times in the New Testament, okay? And so what that word means is good news. Very simply, The gospel means the good news, and it's the good news about Jesus. Um, Before I told you this was true, I checked again today, but my three-year-old Lucy, she's got this down. Sometimes I'll just hit her with, I'll say, hey, Lucy, what, Dad? What's the good news? Or what's the gospel? And she'll say, the good news. And I'll say, about who? She'll say, Jesus. And so then I get ice cream out or whatever else, because it makes me a happy dad. Um, Part of why I tell you that stuff is not to... It's not to brag on my kids, but I just want to sow into this congregation a high ethic of investing the gospel into our children, and not just thinking of them as recipients of the benefits of grace in our lives, but also think of them as future missionaries. We're training them. If Jesus doesn't come and get us, they're going to be the next ones responsible for spreading this gospel. We've got to think about that. That's really important. And so from the littlest time, we want to be investing in them. Uh, and I know you're more excited about that than you're acting, right? You excited about your kids sharing the gospel? That's an exciting thing to me. I got to dedicate my son last week, could barely hold it together, because I was thinking about the days coming when that guy's going to be telling somebody that Jesus can save them from death and sin and slavery to both. That's an exciting thought to me. should be for all of us. Okay, so let's read uh, 1 Corinthians uh, you in chapter 15? Did you make it there? We're going to start in verse 1. Sounds like none of you made it, but we're going to go ahead anyways. I gave you plenty of time. So either that or you're just real skittish about answering. So I'm going to move forward, okay? So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In case you didn't hear, I'm going to start in verse 1, okay? Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel. This is our great treasure. This is our most precious jewel. This is the beautiful, powerful, eternal gospel right here. This is very possibly, this may be a subjective opinion, but the most concise presentation and representation of the gospel in all of the scriptures. Paul lays it out for him. He says, I'm going to remind you again of the gospel that I preached to you. And then he gives it to us very plainly. And, and here's the thing. Here's what I want to ask you. Where is this ranked on the importance chart, Love City? Here's what he says. I'll lead you up to it. For I delivered to you as of... Wow. Wow. Okay, I'm going to sit down. Does anybody else want to do this? <laughs> that was bad. Okay. We'll do it again. Maybe I wasn't clear. Paul said that he delivered to this as of... 
first importance. First importance. Why is being gospel-centered in everything the first core value that we'll talk about as a church? Why is this of highest importance to us? Why is it we believe that all the other core values flow from this first core value of being gospel-centered? Because clearly here we're told this is of first importance. You don't get this right, you're not going to get anything else right. If this isn't set first, all the other stuff's going to crumble and it's not going to make sense. The gospel is of first importance. Okay. Let's move on from there. Starting in verse 5, he says, And and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. I want you to notice here that Paul builds an apologetic defense of his truth claim about the gospel into his gospel declaration. Uh, You may not see that right off the bat. I'll show it to you. First thing he says is uh, when he's talking about what happened, he says, For I delivered to you first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So twice he makes that statement. And somebody could just think that he's covering his bases, letting people know that. Really what this is is built into his declaration of the gospel is a defense of the gospel. So what he's saying to those that might be hearing what he's saying, especially those that maybe would be of a Hebrew background, he's saying the scriptures told us this would happen. As the scriptures said, he's referencing uh, in saying those things twice, he's referencing the Old Testament prophecies that were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And they describe in amazing detail his birth, his life, his betrayal, and even the way he would die. There was prophecies written hundreds of years before. And that's part of what Paul is saying here, built into the defense. He's anticipating somebody may not buy hook, line, and sinker right off the bat what he has to say about Jesus. But he's showing, he's pointing them back. He's saying, remember what the scripture said. Remember when Isaiah said that he would be pierced through for our transgressions, when it describes pretty clearly a crucifixion. Interestingly enough, when Isaiah prophesied the way Jesus would die, crucifixion had not even yet been invented. So you could chalk it up to coincidence, or you could start to see that there's a certain point, there's a tipping point where coincidence doesn't quite explain it. There's a tipping point where when so many things are described in so much detail, so far before Jesus was even born, it lends itself to that perhaps there was supernatural intervention. That's our position clearly, and that was Paul's as well. And he weaves that into his gospel declaration. Hold on, before you doubt, answer me this. (laughs) How did we have scriptures saying where this guy would be born? Details about his life, the way he'd be betrayed, and even the way he would die. Verses 1 through 9 are an apologetic for the resurrection of Christ because Paul is confirming that several people by name, uh, he's confirming several people by name who Jesus appeared to after he had risen from the dead, right? So he goes through and he says, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to James, um, and he goes on to say even that he appeared to him. uh, And then he tells us that Jesus appeared to 500 people and he says, it's important that he says this, most of whom were still alive at the time of the writing and circulation of this letter. So he makes a distinction. Okay, yes, some of the guys, these 500 people or so that Jesus appeared to, after he had died and been buried in the tomb and he rose from the grave, he appeared to 500 at one time. And Paul says, listen, if you want to check that, most of the guys that were there to see that are still alive. You can go check it. And at the time that this letter was written and circulated among the churches, Somebody could have raised their hand and said, yeah, actually, I was, I was around then, and that, that didn't really happen, but they didn't. And so, again, Paul is building into his declaration of the gospel a defense of the gospel. He then cites his personal story as evidence, reminding the church at Corinth and all of us that he was one of, if not the, most zealous persecutors of the church. That is, until Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And it causes us to ask, we, we should ask the question, what causes a man to go from a pas- passionate persecutor of God's people to one of God's people? A short meeting with the glorious risen Christ apparently is enough to do that. 
to take a man from someone that was traveling around believing that he was doing God's service by murdering Christians because he was a Pharisee. He didn't believe in Jesus. He believed that everything about Jesus was heresy and that it was setting itself up against the, the real God, that, it was, that Jesus was false and not true, and he was passionate about that. So passionate, in fact, that anybody that would uh, stand up and say they believed that, he'd drag them out of their house, them and their family, and murder them. That was Paul's job. That was his deal up until the Lord Jesus met him. He was on the road to Damascus to kill more Christians, and Jesus knocked him off his uh, horse, donkey, slash, whichever one he was riding, and said, hold on, you serve me now. I mean, come up with another explanation for how Paul the Christian killer becomes Paul, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul, one of the greatest champions of this gospel message. I think he met Jesus. I think he had a conversation with the master. And you may ask in thinking about that, you see that picture, and that's, that's amazing that God did that. You could, you could ask the question, why, doesn't just, why, why won't God just do what he did with Paul with everybody? Like, wouldn't it be easier if he would just light a bush on fire and talk with them like he did with Moses or, or knock them on their rear and tell them, you serve me now like he did with Paul? Yeah, that probably would be easier. But easier is not always better. You see, God has decided to give us the ministry of reconciliation. He decided to include us in the glorious mission of sharing the eternity-changing gospel with the world. And you could ask why. Because it could seem easier if God would just come and have a personal visit with everybody, right? That it would, it would take out the middleman. It would, it would take out... Um, our failed attempts and the fact that sometimes we as men and women don't get this mission right. Uh, you could ask why. Why won't God do it that way? And, and that's, that's a solid question. Um, the motive that causes you to ask it is important on whether or not it's something you probably shouldn't say out loud. But uh, it, it's a fair question because we often treat this mission as a burden instead of a privilege, don't we? This ministry of reconciliation that God has given us, this ability to be a part of his mission of taking people from darkness to light, of taking them from death to life, sometimes we treat it like a chore on a list as opposed to one of the most beautiful privileges anybody could be given. We do that, and so wondering why God hasn't just circumvented us is probably a, it's probably a fair question. I suspect, I don't have any hard evidence for this, I suspect it has something to do with his fatherly love for us. Fathers throughout history have wanted to teach their children what they do. If you think about it, not, not so much now because fatherhood in general has kind of waned as a high value, but in times past, it was the joy of a father to teach his children his trade. It was the joy of a father to pass down to his children the knowledge that he had. And uh, I think God wanted to share what's important to him with us, setting people free from sin. He wanted to let us, his kids, be in on it. I think God wants us to have the joy and sense of purpose that comes in being a part of gospel mission. And I honestly believe that it will be a source of joy when for eternity we get to swap stories like old soldiers about the mission that we were on for King Jesus. Can you imagine sitting around in eternity with others that believed on Christ and get to talk about not only how did they come to faith, but just the glorious stories of how God was able to use them by his grace to affect the eternities of others. Having people come up to us in eternity and say, you know what, you, you have no idea, you, you don't even remember my name, I'm sure, but the, the way you lived your life, or you stopped, you prayed for me one day. You didn't know that that mattered, but you planted a seed in my heart, and I'm here today. God used you. I mean, that's beautiful. That's going to be fun. Does that sound fun to you? That sounds fun to me. I'm excited for that. It's going to be a good day. So we have established and we've worked through what the gospel is. It is the good news about Jesus. Everything Love City does, our vision, our mission, every song that we sing, every children's class we teach, every outreach we do, and every sermon that is preached here will be centered on that which is of first importance. Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his triumphant resurrection. All that we do will be centered on the gospel. Because for us, it is always and totally and solely and completely and only about King Jesus. That is the high point. That is the mission. That is the goal. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians 2. 
what we're going to see in Ephesians is a practical example of effective gospel presentation. And this is really for us, it's the blueprint uh, that we use for communicating the gospel effectively. There's a lot of ways to communicate the gospel. There's good ways to do it. Not everyone has to do it exactly like we do here at Love City, but there's a lot of bad ways to do it too. And we don't want to get into error or get into uh, presenting the gospel in a way that is unfruitful or untrue because there are those that sometimes resort. Maybe, they, maybe they've forgotten Romans 1.16 that says the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. They think that the gospel needs their help. And so what they insert into their presentation of the gospel is sometimes forms of deception and manipulation to try to, to, try to set things up so as to get a reaction that maybe will add up to being able to chalk up some numbers somewhere and, and let somebody know how many hands were raised or people's lives were changed. But that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the reality of God's perfect, beautiful gospel to come and seize the hearts of people and for people to go from death to life. We're not just looking for a raised hand or a prayer prayed. We're looking for real, authentic transformation. People being taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light for their eternal destination to go from hell to eternity with God. It's got to be real or it doesn't matter at all. Amen? Amen. So this will show us a practical example of, of effective gospel presentation. So we're in uh, Ephesians 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, these will be very well-known verses for some of you. Um, others of you, if, if this isn't something you've read a lot, it'll just, it should stir you and fill you with joy. Verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, I'm going to chalk up um, the, our, the pitiful response last time to the fact that maybe I snuck up on you with looking for you to say first. So I'm going to let you know a fill-in-the-blank is coming, okay? So now you have no excuse. Everyone wake up if you'd start to, you know, going to do a bit of a sugar coma there. Come back with me. I need you to respond partially to give me uh, enough energy just to finish this, okay? So help the pastor. I love you. Come here with me. What is this, Love City? Before Paul can communicate the good news of the gospel, he has to tell the Thank you. I want to keep preaching the Bible. Amen. Okay. Yes, that tells me somebody's been listening. This is a high value for us here at Love City. And this, it's not something we just pulled out of the air. We didn't just say, oh, let's weave up our own philosophy on gospel presentation. We see here a blueprint of Paul doing this. He has to let us know the depth of the bad news before the sweetness and the preciousness and the beauty of the good news strikes us in the way that it should. And so that's why he says things like, all of you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He paints this picture of complete hopelessness without the hope of the gospel so that we would not trivialize what it is that Jesus has done, so that we would not make the mistake of thinking we were okay before this gospel radically changed us. We got to know we were in deep, deep, deep trouble, and then we were all in that boat together. Amen? I can amen the bad news, but only because I know the good news. Right, And so he takes Ephesians 1 through 3 and he weaves for us a picture of despair of the bad news. But then he says this, starting in verse 4, but God, mm. that, those two words right there, but God, I mean, I'm talking about not just in the fact that he came and saved me, but all the time. There are points in my life where if it were not for but God, I'd have been done. There's such joy in being able to say, yeah, you know what? Statistically, in every other way, man, people, everybody looking at the situation, I should have been dead or worse. There's no way I should have made it through this. You have, maybe some of you have had a financial situation. It was like, there's no hope here. There's so much red ink, and it's all zeros. But God, you ever had one of those? I've had times that I promise you the math didn't add up. I'm not that good at math, but I can run a calculator. It shouldn't have worked over and over and over again. But God, he made a way. 
God wanted to plant a church called Love City in Norwood, Ohio, starting with no money, no support, nobody knew about it, 10 people in the living room with a vision to tell people about Jesus and love people and love God. And there's no way it should have made it to where we are today. I got you, to, you need to understand the miracle that Love City Church is. It, it just shows us that God has a mission for us. This has nothing to do, do you understand how unqualified I am to do this? To stand up here and preach, hey, well, have, hey, have you been to seminary? That's what people do when they, when they preach the Bible. No, I have not. I have no formal training. Well, I, I mean, then you must have been pretty good at, you know, like at least somewhat smart. No, I'm a dumb hillbilly at best. Well, maybe like, maybe like you're fashionable and that attracts people to you. Is that what's going on here? No, we have nothing going for us. From me down, none of what you should have to plant a church did we have. We had 10 people in a room that believed that God had gave us a vision. And you know what? Jesus showed up. And that's so good because it left so much room for Jesus to show up big. If this church is ever going to do anything more than it already has, everything we've done thus far has to be chalked up to the fact that Jesus is real and he likes to plant churches. There's no other answer for why we're here. And anything we do from here on out, that same answer gets, gets lifted up. How have people, how have people, so many people been baptized at, at Love City? How many how have so many people come to meet Jesus at Love City? Jesus. He did it by his Holy Spirit. It's only by his grace. Because we didn't have any other stuff going for us. God's good. I'm telling you, but God. Love City should have shut down like a whole bunch of other churches that are shutting down all the time. But God. It's the only answer. Do you know how many churches have plateaued and declining in this country? A lot. Some people say more than are, than are doing, that are growing. More churches are shutting down or, or have reached the point where they're not going to grow anymore and they're failing. How is it we, we can just show up and say, hey, we're going to preach the Bible. I mean, we don't have any cool stuff. None of the, you know, we don't have fog machines, no lasers, <laughs> right? I mean, how is this working? <laughs> but God, but God, he's good. He's faithful. He's in it. I need you to rejoice in that love city. I need you to be encouraged by it. Because some of you, you've, you've lost that in your life. You, you keep just looking around at what you can see. You keep just looking around. You keep running the scenarios in your brain. Well, I've got this strength. I've got this amount of money. Well, I could do this or that, and maybe that would work. I need you to just factor in always, every time. But God, you're not always going to see how it's going to work. But that's why Philippians says we can have peace that surpasses understanding. I know you got stuff that you can't figure out. I know you got stuff that looks like it's impossible. I understand that. It just is a beautiful opportunity for Jesus to show up and do something you couldn't have done yourself. Trust him. Don't walk by sight. Walk by faith. Let God be glorified as you walk with him in victory. Is it always going to be easy? No, it's going to be hard. Trusting Jesus and walking by faith is hard because everything else we do all the time in life, it's like walk by sight, what, work within the parameters of what I see in the natural, but we're, just, we're called to more than that. And you are going to have to struggle and strive, and sometimes it's gonna, you're going to feel like you're holding on just by the, the skin of your teeth, and your teeth don't have skin. Why is that a statement? I don't know, but the bottom line is, uh, though it may be hard, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. God gets glory and we get character and, and hope when we trust Jesus and we walk through difficulty with him. It's good. When, we, when we're a part of something or we do something that's, that's way bigger than we could have ever pulled off on our own, that's a good thing. For some of you, you're scared of that and like you insulate your life to the point where you know you can handle it. Because you've gone out on a limb before and, and maybe it didn't work out and you're like, I don't like how that feels. I would, I would liken it to this. I see it a lot, maybe more pronounced when we do ministry um, downtown. There's a lot of folks that, that live on the streets, that uh, just drink every day um, and, and don't do anything else than that because they have tried to climb the ladder, whatever that means to you. They've tried to climb that ladder so many times I've been knocked down at the bottom, they decide they don't like that feeling anymore, so then they just stay down there at the bottom rung. Please don't do that. And it doesn't have to be that you just drink yourself into oblivion every day and live on the streets for you to just be staying at the bottom rung. 
Just because something didn't work out before, that doesn't mean now I'm going to quit and not try that again because I don't like the, the feeling of not getting it done when and, and how I wanted to. Can I just encourage you, trust God, dear one. Trust him. Go ahead, start climbing again. And you know what? If you fall, you'll learn something on the way down. Get up and do it again. Trust him. He's faithful. I promise you that. I, I, I can, there's not many things about anything else that I can be this confident on, but I'm telling you right now, God's faithful. Trust him. And, and the vision for your life, the vision for what you're going to do in ministry and as a part of this grand scheme of building God's kingdom, I just want, I want to push you for that vision to be bigger than something you would do if you were totally comfortable and figured, I got it. Right? If your vision's not bigger than something you could accomplish in and of yourself, it's, it's probably, you probably not fully opened the, the window to hear what it is God would say. You all right with that? Some of you aren't. You're real nervous now. You're like, well, I had it all figured out, and I was going to have a nice, tidy little life. Thank you! You're welcome. It's my job to agitate you for Jesus, okay? So there you go. Have fun with that. All right. Where, what are we even, where are we at now? That was not in the notes. Okay. Um, so yes, we have a strong conviction here at Love City uh, that we can't effectively communicate the good news without first communicating the bad news. We see that Paul does that very effectively here. And this is especially true in our day when the lie of salvation by good personism is rampant and sadly more prevalent than what the Bible actually teaches. Now, some of you went to college and you said, did he say personism? I realize it's not a word. It's just a good way to say it. You know, good personism. That's this, it's this rampant lie that people believe that if they reach some level of morality that they will, you know, they'll make it in. And the reality is the only reason we have any idea whatsoever what God thinks about anything is because of this word. And so we would do ourselves a great favor to go to his word to see what it is he teaches about salvation. Okay? So let's read what the Bible actually teaches on the subject. Let's read verse, oh, that's what happened, but God happened. We're supposed to be reading verses 4 through 10. Okay? But God, I'm good now, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I'm telling you right now, if you belong to Jesus, those verses should fire you up on the inside. Man, those are good. You like those verses? Lord Jesus, those are good verses. Mm. Okay, so that's what the Bible actually teaches about salvation, right? So we have this rampant lie in our culture. There's some level of morality or abiding by the law that if you reach it, normally it's this subjective level. It's like somewhere just above the worst person you can think of. If I'm better than them, surely I'll make it in, right? St. Peter standing at the gate, you know, as long as that guy's somewhere nearby, he's real bad, I'm going to look good in comparison. I'll be able to squeak on by, which means I can do what I want, la da 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 just, you know, Try to follow the golden rule every once in a while, at least, and maybe God will, will let me in. I'm not the worst person I know personally or even maybe that I've read about, okay? That's not what the Bible teaches, right? It has zero to do with how good we do or how bad we do. It's got everything to do with how good Jesus is. It's got everything to do with the fact that he paid the price, that he was the substitute, that all of us, you see, he painted the bad news effectively. He said, all of you were dead in trespasses and sins. Here's the deal. Answer me this, what happens if a dead guy tries super, super hard to come back to life? I'm talking tries really hard. Does, does the best job a dead guy's ever done at trying to come back to life? Now, I need you to, see, here's the problem with this right here. You've all watched too many zombie things. Take all that out, and let's just deal with reality. If a dead guy tries to come back to life in and of itself, what's going to happen? Does that work? No, it doesn't work. We were all in serious trouble. Now, dead in our sins and transgressions is not the only way that uh, we're described. That, that, that's, there's many other metaphors that are used. We're called blind. 
Um, you know, there's other ways that God uses to describe that. So, you know, sometimes that dead in your sins and trespasses can be taken too far and it can skew a little bit our understanding. But the bottom line is the picture that he's painting is you weren't going to fix this. You were not going to fix it. doesn't matter if there was a certain point where you realized, wow, I've done bad. I'm going to do good every day from now on. And, and, and somehow that cosmic scale that weighed out your good and your bad, it tipped a little bit to the side of good. That's not going to do it because here's what the Bible teaches. God is perfect. Everyone on that train, everyone at least come, maybe you, this is your first time ever to sit and listen to the Bible we preached. You probably understand at least that principle that God is perfect. The Bible calls him holy. He's set apart. There's no one else like him. God is perfect. And what is required for relationship with a perfect God is perfection. That's the way we were when we were originally created, without sin. We had no sin. That's why we could communicate with God the way that Adam and Eve did. That's why we could be in his presence directly. Here's the thing. First John, he, he helps us with a good metaphor. He, he tells us that light and dark can't mix, Right? All darkness is is the absence of light. Like you can't, you can't mix the two. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how many particle accelerators you build. You're not going to get light and dark to mix. That's how it is. God's perfection is so complete. He's like light. You cannot take the darkness of sin. We couldn't stand to be in his glorious presence with that sin stain on us. That's why somebody else had to come and fix the problem. We couldn't fix it. So Jesus did. Jesus came, born of a virgin, then he lived a perfect life, that perfect life that we, we should have but couldn't have pulled off. He did it. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he was tempted in every way that we are. He didn't get a cheat. He didn't get to, to bypass temptation because, because he was God. Somehow God restricted his deity in Christ, and he was able to take on human form. Pastor Vince, how is that possible? I don't know, but I'm really glad that it's true. I'm glad that God's smarter than me and can do stuff I don't totally understand. If so, I mean, if that wasn't the case, why am I worshiping him, right? If I could figure out how he does all that he does, well, I mean, I'm, I'm on his level, but I'm not by a long shot. <laughs> That's why I lay down and serve him and worship him. That's why I trust all of my life to him. That's why my eternity's in his hands, right? So Jesus comes, lives the life we couldn't, then dies in our place for our sins, but the story's not over because he doesn't stay dead. Death has no claim to him. Death can't have victory over him. He rises three days later, which totally validates everything he was saying before that got him killed. Stuff like, hey, before Abraham was, I am. Stuff like, hey, are you the son of God? Are, are, Are you claiming really to be God, to be equal with God? It's as you say. See, there's fools that will try to say, oh, Christians made that up. Jesus never claimed to be God. That's exactly what I said it is. It's foolish. Very plainly did over and over. It's what he got murdered for. (laughs) But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And Paul, in his beautiful gospel presentation, he knows right off the bat that resurrection is going to be hard for the natural mind to grasp. So he goes ahead and weaves a defense into that truth claim. He says, yes, Jesus rose from the grave. And I'm telling you, I saw it, James saw it, Peter saw it. All those guys end up dying claiming that they saw it. And he said, and he showed himself to 500 people. Most of them are still alive. Go ask and see if it's not true. He's like, I know resurrection is hard for you to believe, but that's what happened. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose. And we're going to get to rise with him. That's our beautiful hope. We too will follow like he did, and we will be resurrected. It's beautiful. Amen. That's what the Bible teaches. Uh, and that's why, you know, for some of you, I don't know if it gets wearisome. Uh, we, I try to guard against it and, and, and talk to you in the context of why the gospel should, should for us always be a source of joy. But that's why we have to make plain in very simple terms every time we come together what the gospel is because there is the potential that there is someone within our midst that has not yet heard this beautiful message. And if this is as important as we say it is, if it's of first importance, then it shouldn't be something that sometimes gets brought up if it's convenient in the midst of a, a Bible talk, okay? If this is our crown jewel, if this is the great hope that we have, if the gospel is of first importance, then we should be able to crack open these scriptures that really are about the gospel gospel from Genesis to Revelation without it coming up in all its fullness and beauty. Right? You happy about that? I'm happy about that. That's that's why we're going to tell you every week, 
We are all imperfect. God is perfect. The only way that gets fixed is through Jesus and his finished work. You're not going to fix it. You're not going to work your way out of it. You know, people will, it's just so twisted what the devil does because you will hear people out here say, you start trying to talk to them about the Lord or the scriptures, and they'll say, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect. And they think somehow that that's a, a, a culture-wide, well, we're off the hook. If we're all imperfect, well, I mean, surely what can be expected of us? Submission to King Jesus, that's, what, that's what's expected. That's the only way we get off that hook of eternity separated from God is by trusting in Jesus. Yes, we all are in the same boat. And it's not, it's not, a, group, um, it's not a group excusing of our sin. It's, it's a group damnation. <laughs> We're all in serious trouble. Paul makes it clear. Read Ephesians 1 through 3 until you get it. It's bad. Without Jesus, it's real bad. But because of him, we have a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful message to preach. Amen? Amen. The gospel is wonderful. Let's talk now about uh, some practical ways to share the gospel. So I think we've made a good defense for why we are gospel-centered, why it comes up all the time, why everything we do is filtered through the lens of gospel effectiveness. Is the gospel being held high by us doing this? If so, then let's do it. If not, then let's can it. That is where we're at. Um, But I want to give you maybe some practical ways to share the gospel. I know for some of you, you may have a burning desire to do so, but it's very hard for you in everyday life to get there. Um, and you feel like maybe that you're not gifted to do it or um, that maybe you're, you're not smart enough to share the gospel, you get worried about maybe not being able to have an answer for the hope that you have if somebody starts to question you. Um, and I would just say that we, we need to follow Paul's example by understanding that there's going to be questions. If we share the gospel, it's a very alien uh, principle. It's a very alien story really to those that are in the culture around us. They may have some general understanding about Jesus and yeah, there's a Bible and there's a God, but when you start to explain to them, you know, that all of us are separated from God by sin and that Jesus had to shed his blood on the cross to, to make atonement and to make a way that we could be reconciled to God, like that it doesn't fit into the rubric of most people's understanding. And so there's, they're going to start to have questions. And I think we should just follow Paul's example and understand that that's going to happen. And that should cause us to have like love-motivated study so that we can prepare ourselves. Peter gave us that admonishment. He said, always be ready with an answer for the hope you profess. You know, part of the deal with that, if, if you're not required often in your everyday life to have an answer for why it is you believe in Jesus, it might not be that vibrantly obvious that you're serving Jesus and, and that, that might tell you that something's off. Uh, guys, we, we, we should be in this world but not of this world, man. There, there should be something different about you. When you walk in a room, uh, if the majority of people in that room do not know Jesus, something everyone should take notice. Not because you're charismatic or you're fashionable, but because he that is in you is greater than he that's in the world. That's 1 John 4, 4. The Spirit of God literally dwells in you. And um, I'll give you some practical ways that as that begins to happen, you can, uh, you can get to gospel conversations. Because I know that some of you desperately want to. You just you feel there's a disconnect there. So uh, number one, so practical ways to share the gospel. I would say uh, to meet a need is a practical way to get open doors towards the gospel. So verse 10 here uh, in Ephesians tells us that we were created for good works. Did you see that? Uh, you were created for good works. So, you know, bottom line, doing what you were created for is going to be more fun than doing what you were not created for, right? And so most people, when they're just serving the lust of their flesh, serving their own selfish desires, they think what they're doing is pursuing happiness. So just, I, had a, I was in a conversation with some guys, interestingly, about this last night. Part of the problem with us is where we live. God does assign the times and places. Acts is clear about that, where we live. And so uh, I believe God sent us to this place in this time as missionaries to this culture. But we need to be aware of the time and place that we're in. Because you are American and because you live in the time that you do, you are going to be predisposed to thinking that your happiness is the most important thing. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of... 
Yeah, okay, some of you paid attention to history class, some of you are asleep, and some of you just don't like participating. You need to change that, okay? Jesus needs to change your heart about that, all right? You're a little cold-hearted, and uh, I'm going to pray for you. Okay, so moving on. Yes, um, the pursuit of happiness. That's, you know, (laughs) that's not a scripture, (laughs) just so you know. Um, I'm not anti-American. I'm very glad that God put me here, and uh, I'm glad that I'm called to be a missionary to this culture, Um, but, you know... Life, liberty, and especially the pursuit of happiness, that is not necessarily an an inalienable right that you have, just because that document says so. You have the right to serve God, and in that is great joy. Um, It would have been better, wrote, if they said, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of God and his will, because in that is the greatest joy possible. To pursue God and his will for your life is where happiness is found. That's where people get tripped up. They get into their head and think, okay, here's where I'd find happiness. And, you know, fill in the blank. If I had a boat, if I had a bigger boat, if I had a car, if I had a bigger car, if I had this certain chemical at my disposal all the time to ingest, I would be happy, right? If I had that person instead of this person in my life, if I could take my pants off with them, that would make me happy. No, it won't. It, you will end up in misery, doing, doing what it is you were not made to do. We were created for good works, and it should be a response and an outflow of the good work of the gospel that's happened in us. Okay? Amen. I don't care if you like it or not. Jesus likes it. I like it. I'm happy. We're going to go for it. Okay? Praise the Lord. So, um, so verse 10 tells us we are created for good works. That's what we were made for, uh, that will bring God glory when we do that. Uh, the book of James tells us that faith without works is dead. He, he says, he goes so far as to give an example. He says, if you see somebody without clothing or hungry and you say to them, go in peace, be warm and filled. He, he says, this is the words he uses. He says, what use is that? He says, your faith is dead. That could sound real spiritual, right? You see somebody naked and hungry. Go in peace, be warm and filled. (laughs) James says you're useless. Stop with your hyper-spirituality and find something, even if it's off your back, to put on them and find something, even if it's out of your pocket or out of what you would eat and put it in their mouth. That's what somebody that's been wrecked on the inside by the gospel in a good way would do. You were created for good works. Uh, he says, what use is that? And, and if that's your response to either, do, you know, James uses an example of somebody at least being fake and saying, go, go be warm and filled. Oftentimes now what we'll do is say, um, you know, it's your fault. You're in that situation. You know, we're, we're much better cops typically than we are firefighters. See, a firefighter shows up, they're going to put the fire out first, then find out how it started, right? Cops show up, it's like, we're, you know, investigation to the hill, right? We're going to find out how this happened. I like both, okay? So if you're one of either, don't, don't come after me, especially if you're a cop, if you have guns. Um, love all of the public service um, members. But um, the bottom line here is, you know, and, and I realize that there's a certain point where, you know, enabling is a bad thing. And if you're aware of the situation, then, then maybe you shouldn't do that. That should be Holy Spirit-led. But ultimately, the right response of a Christian in general uh, is not, you know, if you, would, if you were smarter or, you know, if you were not lazy or la-da-da-da-da, whatever it is, the reality is we can justify ourselves out of helping very easily. Um, but that exhibits most of the time a dead faith. Most of the time that's just us being selfish and uh, self-focused, which doesn't lend itself uh, a whole lot of credibility to the fact that Jesus has changed us. Meeting a need is a great way to lovingly open the door to someone's heart that you may then share the gospel with them. Uh, We do this weekly. I'm not sure if all of you are aware, but you're all invited. Uh, We do an outreach uh, to the homeless in Cincinnati downtown, um, and and we do that every week. But I'm more interested right now in focusing on the fact that we need to be on the lookout for opportunities in our daily lives to meet a need. And some of you might say, you know, I don't, in my general day-to-day life, I don't see naked people that need clothes, or someone that's hungry and without food. Um, First of all, I would say if you pray and ask the Holy Spirit, sometimes you'd be revealed, things would be revealed to you that you'd be surprised about. People that you know uh, well, that you would assume are okay, that aren't, uh, but they're good at hiding it, because 
Um, in a culture where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is the high value, sometimes it's not okay to let anybody know you're struggling. So um, sometimes just asking God to open your eyes to see needs um, would help you to be more sensitive to that. But here's just some basic ways. Maybe you don't have anybody in your sphere of influence that's hungry or without clothes, uh, but just spending time with someone who's lonely. I mean, seriously, you have no idea what that could mean. Especially pay attention to elderly folks. Um, I've got a neighbor that uh, we went out to breakfast in this morning. We've been trying to do that on a regular basis, but his wife passed about five years ago. His daughter died, both of them, of cancer within the last year. And uh, super nice guy, but he sits in his house by himself. He just doesn't know what to do with himself. For 51 years, he was married to one woman, and then that was gone. It's like... How do you adjust to that? How do you change the rhythms of life? And so he's, he's still working on that. And so, um, and this is another great way, you re- man, just please try to involve your kids in, in ministry. Like I just, when I go over to his house and try to pull him out, I take the kids because he can't be mean to the kids, right? So it's good. He could tell me, oh, I'm busy or I'm, you know, whatever, la da 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 But, you know, you bring the kids and have them smile and say, hey, Mr. Harold, can you come to breakfast? You know, he's like... Yeah, let me put some, you know, let me put a shirt on. I'll be out there. You know what I mean? So, <coughs> um, <coughs> kids are super effective, and it just it you're weaving into their little little spirits a, a high emphasis for caring about other people. It's good. So spend time with someone that's lonely. Uh, buy a meal for someone who's hungry. Um, sometimes that could be groceries. You know, for a family, just you you have no idea how that can communicate to somebody. Not only that there's people that care, but that God is watching out for them. Um, I've, I've known a lot of people personally that have been on both ends of that, either, you know, stared at empty cupboards, asked, I mean, this is, this is the God's honest truth. I could, I could tell you of at least a handful of people that have told me they've stared at, at bare cupboards, looked over at their kids, not knowing what they were going to feed them, prayed desperately, just asked God, please, we need some food. And it's always this ridiculous amount of time that if you're a skeptic, you wouldn't believe, but there's just so many people that have told me this. Within a short amount of time, there's a knock on the door. Somebody's there with a bag of groceries. I know a lot of folks that have lived on the streets, they were down to nothing, and they've said they just prayed in desperation, and, and God delivered them. It, you caring and being that instrument, it helps communicate not only that there's people that care, but that, that God's answering prayer and that he loves them. So it's so powerful. Um, it could be as simple as just opening a door for somebody and smiling. You know, there, there are people that in the darkness of depression, they just get so overwhelmed that they begin to believe that there's just nothing redeemable about this world, that there's no people that, that are worth sharing with or opening up to, that nobody would care if they were gone. And that's how they get into these, one of the ways they get into, you know, this, this thought that suicide would be the best option. You just don't know what it can mean for you to just wait an extra second, open that door, and smile at somebody. And when it's intentional and it's gospel-centered, it, it has more effect. Uh, I would say to you that some of you have heard this saying, it's cute, but it's not really that accurate. Um, preach the gospel and use words when necessary. Um, I understand what's trying to be said there. If we do not live a life first, that represents the fact that the gospel has changed us, our words will mean very little. But we do need to be willing to be bold enough to speak the gospel because someone can't get the total story about their need for Jesus out of you being nice. Right? We need to be willing to share the gospel when those opportunities come up. We need to be willing to open our mouths and say, yes, you are a sinner. Yeah, I love you. You've sinned. Yes, you're not perfect. You willing to come to the table with me? Yes, right? Okay, God is perfect, so we have a problem. But Jesus, he, he came up with a solution. Will you trust him? Right? We've got to be willing to speak the gospel uh, as well as willing to live it. If you do either one of those without the other, they're, they're, they're not as effective, if they're effective at all. Right? Because if you just run around and rah, 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 sin, but then you're a total jerk all the time, it's just, it just doesn't hold a lot of clout. Um, Love-motivated gospel preaching and living um, is, is going to be the most effective thing every time. Um, giving someone who is blind and deceived and dead in their sins a sandwich 
but not making every effort to share the gospel with them is like throwing a hoagie to a drowning person. Okay? I mean, it's like, you know, you see somebody, they're, they're out in the middle of, of a body of water and they're clearly drowning, they're screaming for help, and, you know, you're ruffling through your cooler like, you know, turkey or pastrami? You want mustard on that? It's like, that, that's nice that you want to give someone a sandwich, but that's not really the biggest deal of, like, what they need right now. What they need is, if you're not a good swimmer, get someone who is and jump out there and help them. And some of us, the problem is, we don't see somebody that's unreconciled to God through Christ as if they're in much, as much trouble as someone that's drowning. Way more so. We're talking about spiritual death. Separation from God is the worst condition you could be in. I'd rather know Jesus and be drowning any day than be walking around on dry land and not knowing. And so we can't just toss sandwiches to drowning victims. We've got to be willing to jump in that water with them, pull them out, tell them about Jesus. Then give them a sandwich. Yes, give them the sandwich. You know? A good one. Not, don't go out there with, you know, bologna on dry bread, all right? It's not... You're going to give someone a sandwich, give them a good one. All right? Amen. Uh, Matt Chandler said it this way, the reconciling gospel is always at the forefront of the church's social action because a full belly is not better than a reconciled soul. You got to believe there's no physical need we can meet that would ever be as much of a blessing as letting somebody know there's hope in Jesus. You believe that? I want us to do both. I'm not putting them in contention against each other. I'm saying that they're both very important, but one is more important than the other. (laughs) We're willing to share the hope about Jesus. Okay, so that was number one, meet a need. I'm trying to give you practical ways in your life to open up the conversation about Jesus and his gospel. Okay, so number two, let it be known that you will pray for people. Um, You know, you could get a large piece of poster board and write on it, I will pray for you. That might not be the most effective way to do this. I mean, hallelujah, do what the Lord leads you to do. But... um, just living a life that exemplifies Jesus in the day-to-day, uh, you will find that people that normally will avoid you when you start talking about Jesus, let them get into a crisis in their life, and if they know you're a praying person, they'll come find you. Some of you are nodding your head because you've had this happen. Somebody you thought would have never wanted to hear anything about the Bible or Jesus, they get into a bad spot, and they're coming to you saying, hey man, will you pray for me? Uh, So just make it known that you'd be somebody that'd be willing to do that. Offering to pray for someone is a very powerful way to show that you care. uh, And it also, it gets people to open up. This is one of the main ways when we're out on the streets doing evangelism that we we coach people to try to get that conversation from the weather, the reds, whatever else is going on to Jesus is, is there there any way I can pray for you? You'll find that people uh, oftentimes will respond positively to that. I'm I'm trying to think maybe, maybe once or twice in the probably... A couple thousand times I've asked someone if I could pray for them, have I been rejected? Um, and I'm kind of, I'm, you know, <clears throat> I'm kind of a bold little bit of a jerk, so I'll say, well, you know what, Hallelujah, I'm not going to pray for you right now, but I'm going to pray for you later. So, you know, do with that what you will. Um, uh, you know, you can pray about whether you want to do that. Uh, plus, when we take people before the Lord in prayer, he hears us and answers. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've prayed for somebody and they come back later and they're like, Man, God, God answered our prayer. That was awesome. Um, and, and it just it shows them that, that God's real, that he, he hears and he cares. And so uh, it's, it's a powerful way to open up the conversation and talk about the gospel. Um, thirdly, um, specifically, I have found this to be really effective. Uh, if, so one was uh, meet a need. Two was let it be known you'll be pray, that you will pray for people. Three is ask people what they think about Jesus. Um, this simple question is the best bridge builder to a gospel conversation that I've ever found. Um, and I need to give honor and credit where it's due. I first heard this question from a man named Pastor Jim Crabb. Some of you know him. Uh, and he doesn't just ask this question for evangelism. I honestly think he starts every conversation that he has with anyone with the question, what do you think about Jesus? And he says it a lot cooler than I'm saying it. He, like, he draws it out. He's like, what do you think about Jesus? So um, I'm not even sure that was a good impression, but uh, he, he really loves people, and he really like, likes to hear the responses. So Christian or non-Christian, he just hits them with that. And uh, I actually, I actually, this actually happened. I know sometimes 
Christians embellish stuff, and preachers especially, but I actually called him one day and asked him if I had to wait until he died uh, to steal his trademark question, what do you think about Jesus? And uh, he gave me full rights and privileges to it. So, um, and I did that because it is really such an effective tool for getting right to the heart of the matter and finding out where people are as it pertains to the gospel. All the time on the streets. If you've done ministry with me on the streets, you've heard me hit people with, what do you think about Jesus? Because I skip all the minutia, all the middle ground, all the this and that and all the other stuff. I need to hear from you, what do you think about Jesus? You think he's a good guy? You got general positive feelings towards him? You think he's the son of God that died in your place for your sins? Do you trust that what the Bible says about him is true? It gets right down to the heart of the matter. Because you can find that oftentimes it's like this long running around the mulberry bush trying to get the conversation to that point. Just cut right to it. And, and I, need, I need you to think about whether or not that would be awkward for you. And if it would, then pray that God would embolden you to love people beyond the fear of what somebody might say if you ask them what they think about Jesus. Because that's going to put you out there. It's going to label you very clearly as I'm somebody that stands with Jesus. I'm a Christian, I'm, and, and I'm letting everybody know that. For some of you, that's uncomfortable. I, 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 you know, I struggle to understand why. Um, I, there's nobody else I'd rather be associated with <laughs> than the King of Glory, the God who created everything with his words. Um, like It's a great team to be on. <laughs> like We're assuredly going to win in the end, so I'm, I'm pretty thrilled about it. Um, so, you know, if you'd wear a LeBron jersey, like, like, like why don't you want to be on Team Jesus? But anyways, um, just, I, I, it's a super effective question. And so uh, I would just give that to you as a gift and um, can't claim credit for it. Uh, also, if you know Pastor Crab, you can, you can thank him for that great question. Um, in talking about the, the, our roots, you know, that kind of gives a little bit of a... Um, <clears throat> It has a connotation to it, like what grounds us and some of our background. I'm not sure that I've said this publicly. I know I've said it to some of you in conversation, but um, it's just, it's good, the Bible says, to give honor where it's due. And I do want to, I want to publicly honor Pastor Jim Crabb because uh, his fingerprints and influence are all over um, this church, my life. And um, it was probably 12 years ago, probably 12 years ago when I heard him uh, in preaching a sermon, he said one time that uh, God made him study nothing but love for one year. I don't remember the context of the sermon. I don't remember anything else about it. I remember him saying that, and I remember the Spirit of God like an arrow just shooting, hitting me in the heart, and I was like, mm, there's something that's right about that. Like 12 years ago, I had no understanding that uh, at some point God would call me to spend the rest of my life trying to convince Christians that loving God and loving people was important. Like, I didn't know that that was part of what was already starting to stir in there, but um, I'm just thankful for men of God that have gone before me that were obedient. So, um, praise God for that. Uh, I have said this often, but it's so important. Uh, Our passion for the simple gospel should not grow cold as we mature in our walk with Christ. The gospel is like a multifaceted, precious, and priceless jewel that as we turn it and look at it, we see different elements of its beauty. May the gospel never, ever be able to be spoken in our presence without our passion and affection for Jesus being stirred and renewed. And may we joyously and triumphantly carry this beautiful good news in our hearts. May it overflow out of our mouths and may our lives reflect its unmatched splendor all the days of our lives. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you, and we are grateful for the gospel. Lord God, it's not become a common thing to us. It's not become just regular. It's not become something we've heard so many times that it doesn't elicit in us passion and joy and affection. We're thankful for the gospel. Without it, nothing else that we would talk about, that we could talk about, would make any sense. There'd be no reason for us to exist. There'd be no reason for us to gather. We would have no mission to be on. We would have no purpose. We would, be, we would walk and wander through this life aimlessly without your gospel. But because of your gospel, we have hope in every situation. We know that we cannot be defeated. We know that there's, there's triumph and victory for those that are on your team. That just like you, we're going to be able to conquer death. That just like you, we're going to be able to conquer sin. 
that we're going to have your righteousness instead of our wretchedness. Because of your gospel, we have hope for eternity. Because of your gospel, we can be filled with love instead of hate, forgiveness instead of bitterness. We can have, we can have joy instead of sadness. Lord, let us put a higher value on pursuing you than pursuing our own understanding of what happiness is. God, please let that evil lie be wrenched from us and replaced with the truth that every human being will find the joy that they're looking for at your feet in the midst of your will. That is where I want to be. God, please, please convince every person within the sound of my voice that that's true, that they may experience the joy of serving you. Please just have your way with us, Lord. Help us, God, to never, ever stray from being gospel-centered. Let us never stray. Let us never lose faith in the power of the gospel for salvation to those that believe. Let us never, ever stop loving your gospel. Never let us get to the point where we're not enamored with it. We're not overtaken by its beauty. Lord, just let us be passionate about everything that has to do with you and the truth of your word every day of our lives. I thank you for letting us be a part of this mission. It's not a burden to us. It's a privilege. It's not a chore, Lord God. It's, it's, it's a great joy. Thank you. Thank you for trusting us. Thank you for letting us be a part of what it is you do. <laughs> just setting sinners free. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.